But this morning we are going to continue our study together in uh, the Psalms of Hope. Last week we began unpacking the most undoubtedly famous and familiar of all the Psalms and one of the most hopeful as well, Psalm 23. And uh, we saw in verses 1 through 3 that through David's beautiful words here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God uh, offers us in Psalm 23 ten reasons to be hopeful all of which rooted in who God is for us. God promises to play 10 different roles in our lives if we are his sheep, if we are his people, if we're his children. That's really where the the metaphor is shifting and headed this morning. But all of these wonderful promises point us to God's care for us. That is the central truth and takeaway from Psalm 23 is that we find hope in the assurance that God cares for us. And this morning we're going to see another sort of sub-theme related to that begin to emerge as well, and that's the importance of trusting in the Lord, trusting in His care for us, trusting in His provision, His protection, His guidance, His faithfulness. So last week I sort of opened in my introduction by joking, confessed my own failure to be an unconditionally a loving shepherd to my dog, Bentley. And so I figured I might as well confess this week to my untrustworthiness as well. So when I was eight or nine years old, my next door neighbor, Michael, and I, um, we invented this fun game of taking turns, jumping down uh, the stairs to see how many steps we could clear at a time. And his younger sister, Catherine, who's probably just four or five years old, uh, was watching and felt left out and wanted to turn. And so Michael and I decided I was older, I would stand at the base of the stairs and I would catch her when she jumped. And so uh, we, we started counting for her, one, two, and then she stopped us and she looked right at me and she said, Will, do you promise you're going to catch me? And I said, of course. And so we continued counting, one, two, three. And what happened next is still a matter of uh, debate between Catherine and I to this day, whether, uh, as I recall, seeing her 40-pound body hurtling at me from five stairs above me, my sort of eight-year-old brain started to do the physics on the amount of force she was going to hit me with, and I panicked and jumped out of the way, or whether, as Catherine still is convinced to this day, that Michael and I secretly hatched this plan to, to trick her. In either case, the end result was the same, and Catherine still has the chipped tooth today to, to show for it. Um, and I guess, you know, if, if there was a lesson that I would want my own four-year-old daughter today to learn from that story, uh, who's watching at home right now, it's that Ellery, uh, boys are not trustworthy. You can't trust <laughs> boys, so... As much as I like to think that I'm more trustworthy today, almost three decades later now, um, my daughter Ellery, still for good reason, has her doubts of that at times. Like when I taught her to ride a bike this summer, you know, she she stopped me, said, Daddy, do you promise not to let go until I say so? I said, of course. And this time, for the record, I did keep my promise, and she is riding Uh, her bike like a champ, all her teeth still intact for now. So, but why does she even have to ask me that question, right? Why does she even have to doubt? It's because she knows that I'm not a perfectly trustworthy father. She, she remembers 
nights in the past when I promised her when we went out to dinner, if she finished all her, her dinner, that she could have some ice cream when we got home, only to arrive home and remember that I had finished the last of the ice cream the night before. She remembers these things. That's the kind of dad who is asking for her trust. But I want to encourage us this morning, friends, from God's word, that he is not a father like you and me, like, like your imperfect father or mine. Our heavenly father is perfectly caring and perfectly trustworthy. I know I mentioned last week the serious shortage of peace in our world today, the scarcity of hope out there. But you know what else is in short supply? Trustworthiness. Does anyone know who we can trust anymore today? Mask are the answer. Masks don't help at all. Hydrochloroquine is the cure. No, it will kill you. I can assure you that if you think either political party is trustworthy, if you are trusting either candidate this November to care about anything more than your vote, you are going to be sorely disappointed. Who can we trust in this world? We can trust our Heavenly Father. Would you stand with me as you're able one last time? We're going to read God's Word together out loud. Actually, I encourage you last week, if you were here, to spend time memorizing Psalm 23. So we're going to figure out who did their homework this week. I'm just kidding. uh, I'll have the slides in front. Uh, just because we might have some first-time visitors with us, so we can't expect them to have it memorized. But can we recite uh, Psalm 23 together out loud? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for these beautiful promises from your word of who you promise to be for us in our lives if we will but trust you. God, we thank you for your care. We thank you for being trustworthy. We thank you that we can trust in your guidance, your comfort, your restoration, your peace, your provision. God, you're so good to us. Father, I pray that this morning you might reveal yourself in a new way, a a deeper, more rich, intimate way to someone this morning. God, I pray if there's anyone here that does not know you as their shepherd, you might open their eyes for the first time this morning to new life in you. God, for all of us who need to know you deeper, 
to trust you deeper this morning, would you do a work in our hearts as well? Draw us close to you this morning, we pray, for our good and for your glory, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So uh, I want to quickly begin by recapping points number one through five for you in your bulletins there from verses one through three from last Sunday. Number one, the Lord is my shepherd. Verse one, it's my shepherd. We noted the personal language that David uh, uses here. The Lord, Yahweh, his personal name, is my shepherd. He's not just a shepherd, he's mine. And God knows we need him to be that because we, like sheep, are stupid and stubborn and prone to stray often in our sin. Isaiah 53, 6 says we are all like sheep. We've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But God has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the good shepherd of John chapter 10 who laid down his life for us, for his sheep, by becoming God's sacrificial lamb. The shepherd become lamb in our place. And in so doing, he provided a way for us. Number two, the Lord is our provider. I shall not want David says. It doesn't mean God gives me everything I want. It means I shall not lack what is most necessary, most urgent, the most urgent need in my life, the forgiveness of my sins. God has already provided for me in the person of Jesus. And yet God goes even beyond that and promises us, Philippians 4.19, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. He promises Psalm 84.11 that no good thing does the Lord withhold from him who walks uprightly. And so W.S. Plumer exhorts us, if you would be happy, set your hope in God alone. We need nothing but what we find in him. And yet, that's often easier said than done. Our hearts are discontent and restless, and so we need peace. And the Lord is our peace. Number three, verse two, green pastures, still waters. God is our peace. Uh, The prophet Isaiah declares of God, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And once again, that promise finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6, who is himself our peace, Ephesians 2, and who gently and generously invites us, beckons us to come to me and I will give you rest. And only Jesus can promise us rest, true rest, because only Jesus is our restorer. Number four, the Lord is my restorer. David says in verse three, he restores my soul, my nefesh, my life, that while we were cast sheep who had wandered from the fold, who had laid down in unsafe pastures, who, who got stuck upside down on our backs, gases building up internally, an imminent threat of death. That is the state that Jesus found us in, in our sin, when in his undeserved mercy and grace, he rescued us, he redeemed us, he restored our souls, and he set us back on our feet, and he set us back on the right path, the path of righteousness, verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his namesake. 
And so we concluded last week with number five, that the Lord is my guide. And what a beautiful gospel truth that is, that Jesus doesn't just show us. He's not just our guide. He doesn't just show us the way back to God, who we have strayed from. Jesus is the way. He is the truth and the life. He makes a way for sinners like you and me, who otherwise have no right to have peace with God who have no right to expect provision from God, to enjoy God's good, loving care. We, we rightfully deserve nothing from a holy God but his righteous anger and wrath against our sin, and yet Jesus willingly stepped in, laid down his life. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And he does it because he's our good shepherd. He's the good shepherd of his own parable in Luke 15, who leaves the 99 to seek out the one and to save the lost. And Jesus saves us. Why? Verse 3, for his name's sake. As, As Plumer says, that which moves God to save his people is found in him, not in them. That is really good news for us. Agape love. A loves B, not for something in B, but for something in A. Because A is God and God doesn't change. That means no matter how much you and I screw up, no matter how far we may stray from the path, we can trust that God still loves us because his love is not ultimately rooted in anything good in me, but in everything good in him. He is the source and the the foundation of his own loving faithfulness toward us. His unchanging goodness That's good news for us, friends. And that's all the sermon before the sermon this morning. That that was last week's sermon, but it gives us the necessary context today for verses 4 through 6. And so to those five promises now, we're going to add five more. Okay? Number six, the Lord is my protector. Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death... I will fear no evil, for you are with me. How is that for a glorious promise this morning? I would love for us to just collectively proclaim that again together because I suspect that some of us this morning may feel like you are in the valley right now and you need to remind yourselves again out loud of these truths. Would you declare that with me again this morning? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Five important, glorious truths that I want to highlight here. Number one, the same shepherd who leads us through life's pastures is still the shepherd through life's valleys. The shepherd of verse two's pastures is the same shepherd of verse 4's valleys. He is the God of the hills and the valleys. And I'm not alone. It is not as if God needs a break. And so God uh, hands over his shepherding staff to Satan for a season. If you have seen Bruce Almighty, it's a great movie, very funny, uh, not exactly theologically sound in some places. And there's a scene where God, played by Morgan Freeman, is explaining to Jim Carrey, uh, uh, who plays Bruce, that God just got tired of running the 
the world after a few millennia, and so he decided to take a vacation. That was the Dark Ages, right? It's funny, it's just, it's not true. It's important for us to know that COVID is not the result of God taking a nap. God has not taken a break since day seven of creation, not from governing human history and not from shepherding in your life. Okay, sometimes in our well-intentioned but misguided theological attempts to protect God from presiding over what we might consider evil, we bring Satan into the picture instead. And as if God is duking it out with Satan for control of the shepherd's crook, but Scripture makes it really clear that it's not even a competition, that Satan falls clearly under God's purview, that God holds Satan's leash. God declares in Isaiah 45, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all things. So no matter the valley, right, the dark ages, coronavirus, the loss of your job, the loss of your parent, the loss of your child, life's darkest imaginable valleys, we can still affirm my shepherd is in charge. We can agree with Job, who despite losing everything, still trusted and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. But here is why we find so much hope in that. It's because, number two, the shepherd is never closer to you than he is when you're walking through the darkest valleys. As personal as God is in this psalm, he's Yahweh, he's my shepherd. But he gets even more personal here in verse 4. Because notice the shift, even in the pronouns. For three verses, David said, He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores me. But what does David say in verse 4? You are with me. You. John Piper asks, Why does David switch from he to you precisely here at verse 4? It's because the crises of life draw us closer to God. We are more prone to talk about God when we are in the green pastures, but we're more prone to cry out to God when we enter some fearful ravine. You can wax poetically, you can reflect philosophically about God all you want when life is just meadows and rainbows, but when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, God better be more to you than just some theological abstraction. You're, you're going to need more in the life's valleys than just some pleasant hallmark card sentiment God. Some platitudes, a nice but feeble idea in your mind Something that your, your pastor publicly talks about for 40 minutes a week on Sundays. If that's all God is to you, friends, it won't be nearly enough to you when you're in the valley. You need a personal God. And God wants to be so much more to you than that. And He may be well leading you through your current valley in your life right now precisely for that reason. He says, draw near to me, James 4.8, and I will draw near to you. 
Psalm 145, verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on Him, and especially when we're hurting. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's the kind of God we need in life's valleys. That's the kind of God He is. Number three, the path that leads through the valley is just as right as the one that led through the pasture. Not only is the same good shepherd still leading, but he's still leading you on the same good path. It's not just the path of righteousness, it's the right path in Hebrew. It's the path you're supposed to be on. And so James Johnston explains, since water and grass can be hard to find in the land of Israel, shepherds led their flocks on long migrations from one pasture to another. Uh, Overgrazing was a big problem, would destroy fields. The sheep wouldn't understand why they left a good place to climb up and down ravines as they walked through the wilderness. Where are we going? The ground is rough and there is no water here. And still the shepherd leads on. The sheep don't know where they're going, but he does. And not a single step of the journey is wasted. Skip Heidsick adds, in the Middle East, when it gets really hot, shepherds will move their sheep down into the ravine, into the wadis, and sheep hate it. Sheep don't have good eyesight, and they hate walking downward into a shadowy ravine. But it's cooler down there, and that's where the streams of water are running. In other words, sometimes the darkest valleys in life are pathways to the greenest pastures. And guess what? It's not just that the eventual green pastures make the valley worth it. A faithful sheep will find joy even in the valley itself. Because not only does God draw closest to us in our times of need, but we draw closest to Him as well. Piper says, there is a danger in the valley that we might get angry at God and reject Him, but there's an even greater danger in the pasture that we might become satisfied with the grass and forget all about the shepherd. In the dark, we hug His knee. In the light, we're prone to wander off in all directions. This is why I love haunted houses, even though I hate being scared, because my love language is physical touch. And my wife's is not. And guess where I can guarantee myself a half hour's worth of intimate physical touch and closeness and hugging and clinging to me like her life depends on it. Right? That's the image. That's what God wants from us in the valley. Like our face buried in his back, eyes closed, just clinging to him as he leads us through the valley. That's why he does it. Listen, if God's chief aim in your life was your comfort, he is a miserable failure. But if God is after your heart, if God is after intimacy with you, then it is no surprise that he sometimes leads you through life's valleys so that you'll draw near to Him, to learn to lean on Him, to learn to trust in Him, rely on His strength in your weakness. It makes sense. You you may still not like it. You may still 
not want to be in the valley. You may still pray, God, deliver me from evil. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But, what? Not my will, but yours, O Lord. And if this valley is the right path for me right now, then God, would you give me the strength to cling to you like my life depends on it? Because it does. It does. And I don't have time to share all the stories here, but I know that I can personally testify to the fact that God has used every one of the valleys in my own life to draw me closer to him in a way that I never would have if I just stayed in the meadows. And I suspect the same is true in your lives as well. We could go around and just pass the mic, share stories of drawing close to God when we had to, when we were at our lowest of lows and had nowhere else to look but up to him. This is why the Apostle James can say, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds because they are a unique window of opportunity to draw a whole lot closer to God. Cling to your shepherd. But even as you do, realize, number four, that the valley won't last forever. The valley will not last forever. We need reminders while we are in life's valleys that God is leading us through them, verse 4. We're not called to camp out in them. It may feel like it. It can start to feel like all of life is just a valley, that this present trial you're in is going to be permanent, but it's not we remind ourselves of the truths of God's word, Romans 8.18. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Right? Heaven is permanent. That's what's permanent. Eternal life is permanent. The Bible says this life is but a shadow of the things to come. And speaking of shadows, we need to realize that we don't travel through the valley of death, do we? What do we travel through? The valley of the shadow of death. Can shadows hurt you? They can be scary, but can they hurt you? For God's sheep, all that death is anymore is a shadow. Even the darkest valley of all, death itself is just a shadow. Christ has removed the sting of death, 1 Corinthians 15, so that we can now say with confidence, Romans 8, that neither death nor life nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Charles Spurgeon said, death is not the house, it's only the porch. And as we sang this morning, those beautiful lyrics, the worst that can come, but shortens our journey and hastens us home. That's the worst thing that could happen to you, right? You catch coronavirus today, you, you, go, you die. You get to go be with the Lord. I'm not saying don't wear your mask. I'm just saying like that, that's the worst that can happen to a Christian. What glorious hope to know that one day the darkest valley of all will ultimately only lead us into the most radiant pasture imaginable. And through it all, and most important of all, number five, our good shepherd is with us every single step 
of the way. What does David say? He says, I'll fear no evil because you promised me a life of ease. I'll fear no evil because, God, you promised you'll never let anything bad happen to me. God doesn't promise that. He says, I'll fear no evil because you are with me. Right? And friends, Jesus is the only proof we need that God has kept that promise. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He of all people knows about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, except Jesus, unlike us, did it without God the Father. He said from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in quoting Psalm 22 there, which not coincidentally comes right before Psalm 23 here, Jesus reveals that in his death on the cross, he bore our sins and he experienced the utter separation from God the Father that you and I deserve because of our sins so that we could experience all the intimacy with God that only Jesus deserves. Jesus walked through the valley totally cut off from the shepherd so that you and I would never have to. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And now nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Number seven, the Lord is my comforter. David says, verse four, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Every shepherd in antiquity carried two things, a staff for directing the sheep and a rod for protecting the sheep. The staff or his crook was used for pulling straying sheep back onto the path. The rod or club had spikes in it, hung from his belt, and was used for fighting off predators. And so a good shepherd always had to be ready to protect his sheep from threats both internal and external from both their own sinful, prone-to-wander hearts and from lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Right? Against the sin inside us and the world around us. And I don't know about you, but it seems like either one of those would have been a sufficient job description to me. Like it, it would be a full-time job if the only thing God had to worry about was protecting me from this crazy world that we live in. Right? Let, me, let me just read to you a sampling of the news headlines from this past week. The worst news yet for America's COVID frontline workers. More than 560 fires rage in California. China's Communist Party is a threat to the whole world. And my favorite of all, NASA says asteroid is headed our way right before Election Day. But don't worry because they say there's only a 0.46% chance of Armageddon. So take comfort in, in that. And yet, in the midst of all of those external threats, we need to recognize that more often than not, the greatest threat to me doesn't come from outside me. I am my own worst enemy, right? I, I, I have plenty of sin inside me already that is sufficient to lead me off the path into mortal danger, save for the shepherd's protective comforting guidance. I need a shepherd with a giant 
rod and an even bigger staff, and praise God, we have one. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I have not lost one of those whom the Father gave me. I don't lose sheep. What comfort to straying sheep like us in a world full of sin and wolves that God has promised not only to save us and call us to his flock in the first place, but he also promises to watch over us and to chase after us and to sustain us to the end. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. What comfort and hope. What a beautiful promise. Number eight, the Lord is my empowerer. My empowerer. Look at verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. And so the setting shifts now, right? Sheep don't dine uh, inside of the banquet table. Uh, that we, We've moved from the sheep fields inside to the, to the banquet table. And, and for most of us modern readers, at first glance, <clears throat> this is sort of a bizarre, almost unwelcomed scene in verse 5. We hear that God prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of thinking, well, thanks, but are there any other tables available? Like, I'll, I'll, I'll wait. I'm happy to wait. God anoints my head with oil. That's just greasy and weird. My cup overflows. Now you're just making a mess all over the table, God. Like, what, what is going on here in this scene? I think the scene is a commissioning banquet. In the Bible, whenever we see God anointing someone, especially in the Old Testament, he is appointing them, setting them aside for a special task, typically to be a leader of God's people, an under-shepherd, as it were, to bring care and provision, peace, guidance, protection, restoration, comfort to God's people. But here's the thing. Who are God's people? Who are God's people? Jesus said in John 10, I've got other sheep not in this fold. Like, not good church-going folks like you. People you don't even know about. We've got to bring them in also. That's why he invites enemies to the party here in verse 5. Enemies. Remember the parable of the great banquet in Luke chapter 14 that Jesus tells. This, this man throws a massive dinner party and no one who he invited came. And so what does he do? He sends out his servants to welcome in the tax collectors and the prostitutes instead. The kinds of people that you and I, if we're honest, we consider to be unseemly, un unworthy beneath us like if they came into our church service would would we invite them to sit with us down in joy hall at the fellowship table right god says that's who i want that's who i want and i'm going to send you my servants out to gather them to me because i get glory from turning god hating enemies into jesus loving children who repent and come sit at my table jesus says love your enemies like like whoever your enemy is think of the person you least expect to be sitting next to you at the heavenly banquet table for all eternity <clears throat> the person who maybe if you're honest you least 
want to be sitting next to you at the heavenly banquet table for all eternity. That is exactly the person God most wants to use you to reach with the gospel. And he has poured your cup extra full to make sure you've got plenty left over to share with them. That's why the cup is overflowing. Otherwise, it'd be a total mess and a waste unless we're meant to share it, to pay it forward. And we are. We are friends. Jesus has called us to go and make disciples. He has empowered us to do it. He said, I'm with you always to the end of the age. My Holy Spirit, I'm giving you to go with you. You go in my strength, in my presence. And we say we're going to do it every single Sunday at the end of every single service here at West Hills in our benediction together. We say, I'm going to go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. I'm going to do it. Do we? Do we? Like, I'm asking honestly, who are you discipling? Who are you paying it forward to? Who are you sharing the good news with? Who are you reaching who desperately need to hear the gospel? Sunday mornings cannot be enough. Yes, invite your friends to church, but it will never be enough to reach them. Number nine, the Lord is my sustainer. It's my sustainer. Verse six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. We've already discussed the Lord's sustaining power in our lives, and so I just want to add this note here that the Hebrew verb for follow really means something closer to chase after. What a beautiful picture that that sinners like us who deserve to live in fear, perpetual fear, of God's anger and his justice chasing us down, now instead get to live in freedom that God's goodness and mercy, his chesed, his loving faithfulness, his grace is chasing after us all the days of our lives. Praise God that that we cannot outrun his mercy. Praise God that we cannot outsin his grace. That though our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. And finally, number 10, the Lord is my Father. He's my Father. Verse 6, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. Listen, just about every commentary I read and sermon I listened to this week described God here in verses 5-6 through six as a host. They said God is hosting a banquet for his guest. Listen, I don't know about you, but there is not a guest in the world who I want to host for forever. Right? Like my, my mom is, is visiting us this weekend. She's staying with us. I love my mom to death. I just hope she doesn't stay with us that long, right? I, I love her. She's always welcome. But right, like we, we, it's good for us to, to take breaks and break the trips up, right? You know what I'm saying? You know who's invited to every meal at my table forever? My daughter. My son. There's always a place for them at my table. And for the record, I... I always have a place at my mom's table too, right? 
It's that weird parent-child relationship. The parents in here get it. Like the rest of y'all are judging me, but the parents get it. I, I know I've always got a spot in my mom's Thanksgiving table. It's that, that parent's love for their child. What does God call us? John 1.12 to all who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And children always have a seat at the table, a room in the house. You come home from college. I come home 20 years later now. I've still got a, a room to stay in. Jesus said, in my Father's house there are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. That's where you want to be, friends. That's the house you want to be in. It's the Father's house. A single day there is better than thousands elsewhere. But do you know why it's so good? It's not the pearly gates. It's not the streets of gold. It's not the, the fountains of living water. This is what James Johnston says. He says, The blessing of being in the house of the Lord is being with the Lord. If you travel for business, you may stay in hotels that have nicer furniture than you have in your house. Managers do their best to make you feel at home, but you never do. Home is where your family is. Take away the people and a house becomes a sad and empty place. The joy of heaven is not mansions or streets of gold. Jesus is the joy of heaven. It will be home because he is there. Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. But friends, we'll close with this. He's only taking sons and daughters. And so I ask you this morning, are you a child of God? Have you received Jesus? Have you believed in his name and been given the right, John 1, to become a child of God? Are you a sheep of his fold? Here's what Johnston asked. How do you know if Jesus is your shepherd? It's a really important question for us, right? How do you know if Jesus is your shepherd? There are two tests. Jesus says in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, so do you listen to his word? And Jesus also said, they follow me. Do you do what he says? My, many people have taken false comfort in the words of Psalm 23. Everybody out there knows Psalm 23. It's not just Christians that, that are familiar with Psalm 23. It's some of the most famous words ever written. But many people have taken false comfort in Psalm 23. They want to believe that God is their shepherd, but they don't listen to Christ or follow him. None of God's blessings come to us except through Jesus. He is the great shepherd for God's people. If you do not belong to Jesus, God is not your shepherd. But if you know Jesus, and if you love Jesus, Psalm 23 is for you. Amen? Let's pray.